Hi, I'm Jordan. I don't know. Hi, Jordan. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about uh, a piece of work I did uh, over last year, uh, which I presented as my thesis. I was in the U of M uh, Archival Studies program and graduated uh, about a year ago, wherein I defended my thesis on uh, emulation techniques for archives, which sounds a bit... Uh, we'll dive into it in a minute. Yeah, we'll dive into it. It's, it's a bit esoteric, but I found it was... It was uh, a lot of it is very uh, niche and for... Uh, mostly just for archivists, but a lot of it uh, pertains to real-world things as the archives does affect everybody. And now that we're making mostly making uh, digital content rather than analog content uh, more than anything else, um, the uh, focus of my thesis becomes more and more uh, necessary every day. When this doesn't really pertain too much to um, to like a normal file, but my focus was it that certain digital files, such as scientific study uh, files uh, and everything down to spreadsheets and video games and uh, uh, homemade programs to deal with your computer, your own computer that you tinker with at home, these are things that people create and are uh, often very necessary for scientific uh, research and very uh, historically relevant. Um, where well, do we want to the overview? If I could just yeah, go ahead. Ask you to start. If you had to give somebody who's never read the thesis, what would be like the introductory? Like, what's the, what is that focal point that you're you're referring to? Um. Well, the focal point, I guess the... Uh, Would it be the, on methodologies of collecting? Or maybe you could describe what archives are, just for, for those of us who are, aren't in the, the field. Yeah, so <clears throat> um, archives are... Well, there's an archive in every city, in every province, country. Every country has their own archive. It's the uh, record that we leave behind. So we create documents uh, over the course of our life without even trying uh through you know forms and whatnot but also with the art and the stories we tell and the uh work we do always necessarily leaves behind something that shows a bit about who we are and tells part of our story which is a very uh poetic way of putting um here's evidence of who you were and what you did um and the archive the archivist's job is to uh, find what's most historically relevant, you know, uh, aside from like uh, blank pieces of papers, receipts, or uh, you know, 16 copies that you only need two of, so, or so, and pres uh, save, organize, and preserve them, and make them available to people uh, so that they can interact with these uh, with these uh, objects. So. Um, so what would be the social function? Like what, what good or purpose is that serving us in society to have records and history and 
Well, there's a, there's a number of them. The, the obvious one is for historians to go back and see what happens and, you know, to have them have a primary source to see that actual evidence of stuff that happened. But a lot of people do genealogy. Who was I? Who did I come from? Who are my ancestors? And it's all in there. You can just go and archivists uh, love being able to help that and show them because we keep them in order to have them available. So when someone comes in saying, I want to find out who my great grandfather was, we're like, oh, well, let's help. Um, there are restrictions because of, you know, personal data, but generally you can just go in and ask. But then there's also people that use uh, historical uh, material for art, for uh, lots of historical material gets used in movies, uh, in um uh, for commercial uh, things, um, you see a lot of archival material, and every time you see a you know an, an old video or an old photo on TV, you're seeing an ar archival material. Um, they go to the archives and say, "I need something on this," and the archivists helps them do the research, and they get what they need. And generally, these are mostly uh, for nonprofit institutions or government institutions. Uh, which um, I use the phrase memory institution. So anytime you want to find out what happened in the past and use your cultural memory, that's what it is. So it acts sort of as a cultural, uh, as a, a societal memory device. Although I, my professor who got me into the archives, uh, Tom Naismith, um, who's a great guy, was he kind of presented it more as a communication device. So you, you, you're allowing the past, the people in the past and their records to show something to the people of the future. So it's you're communicating with the people that will come after you. Here's what I did. Here's what I was. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. Here's what happened. Uh, and it obfuscates any political narrative of the moment or any uh, public opinion it shows you what actually is, good or bad, uh, because you read someone's diary, here's what I'm saying, and yes, you have to view it through a lens of uh, critical awareness, you know, what is he actually, why is, what's he lying about, what's he not, um, but it shows you more what actually happened. So how do we know uh, Abraham Lincoln actually existed? Well, we can go to multiple different sources and find records of him uh, to show where he was, what he was doing. And we can get a more complete version, maybe even a very uh, accurate version of what was going on. Uh, and the so more- say it's sort of like triangulating our knowledge to sort yeah. of like corroborate different pieces of information that we have, as well as dig up like a unique source for citation or for, for use mm -hmm. in a movie or whatever. Um, it also sort of, sort of both purposes. Is that what yeah, it also den tends to keep us very honest. So we, if you say something in public, and this is where uh, journalists often go. So you see a politician, and he'll go up and he'll say, "Oh, you know, you, you know, in the last four years we did this, and it was great, and it was the best thing ever." And then you go into the archives and you look at the numbers and you put them all together and you have you do the work because it's not just there you have it's you know millions upon millions of boxes um you put in the work and you find it out and you come out and say no you're wrong this is what the record shows and uh it acts as that check uh so it's 
it, it can act as a mechanism of verification as well as a mechanism of memory, which I guess can be considered two sides of the same coin because as a society, we need to know who we are. And good and bad doesn't matter. Uh, if we can make up what we where we came from and what we did, then our future can change moment by moment and it'll be chaos. So um, now my work comes in when I get to a place where uh, our society started making digital records uh, as early as the 60s, but more so taking off in the 80s, 90s, and then exploding in the 2000s. And now, uh, well, in the mid-2000s, the digital became completely ubiquitous with our society. Um, some might even argue before, but uh, that might be for a different uh, program. Uh, but, uh, yeah, go on. Sorry, I was just going to, I wanted to go back to what you said there, because I think it's really, um, it's worth underscoring or underlining. You said uh, the archives and the keeping records and proper track, it keeps us honest and it teaches us who we are. And yeah. uh, I just sort of wanted to mention that as a, uh, like a highlight because that's sort of referential to everything that you go through in your thesis I think like what we'll be talking about is uh, the importance of it being sort of like the motivation I guess for all of this work yeah and a um, uh, an archivist I worked with a couple of years ago um, uh, uh, Kevin Palandat I'm sorry if I ruined your name if you're actually watching uh, I worked with him at LAC in Ottawa, and he had a presentation where he noted that the archivist's work is one essentially of fear. Um, because when you're doing appraisal, you're finally figuring out what's what will be good and what will be bad. Um, you worry that if you slate something for destruction, you are consigning that piece of history to oblivion so we don't know that if we get rid of it and that's the fear that you're actually you make a mistake and you will erase some of history and that's the fear that we get with when i when i think of the um the digital technology right now that we're not most archives are not doing anything to uh um to save that, and so we're losing a lot of this uh, referential material, this um, this material that is being said online that we can miss, and we're losing a lot of this stuff that we can look back and find out the truth of who we were. Because before we just save a page, and we save a book, and we save a record, and the truth is there. But now we, we can lose it by just having it be deleted, and we're not so much losing it to, to uh, a malicious deletion, you know, haha, I'm gonna slate this for destruction. We're losing it to inaction, which is almost worse. Um, so you're kind of talking about like the experience of the history, like the experience of the record? Yeah, I think that's stepping ahead a bit. Um, but yes, uh, my focus was on the interactivity of the records. But um, in general, most archives don't have a digital program. They either outsource the minutest uh, amount of it to something like Iron Mountain, um, 
uh, it's a company that does uh, digital uh, storage and preservation and destruction. You see their trucks roaming around town, those giant shredder trucks. Uh, I think there was also, it featured prominently in a season of Robot or Mr. Robot, where they, you know, go into Iron Mountain and they hack it, and it was really cool. Yeah, billions too. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's a lot more boring than that, although it is that serious, because you have governments, uh, like provincial and federal and civic municipal governments, let me just name all, uh, <laughs> the, a lot of these places just outsource to it because it's easier. When um, you get smaller archives who say like a local Ukrainian archives, there's a lot of those on the prairies here, uh, or um, a, you know, a club or a association that has their own record keeping, but they're starting to make digital files and they have it on their, their home computer of the one of the board of directors or um, a small startup software company making a video game. And it's again on like someone's hard drive not backed up it's not you know being checked you don't have it's not being you know you don't have any uh you're not enforcing the veracity of the bit level data it's just kind of sitting there degrading uh so you don't have the other thing with digital preservation is that it's not just here's how to keep the digital aspects going it's here's how we make sure with uh so you know paper a piece of paper will degrade if you make it wet and you leave it out in the sun if there's a ton of stuff that happens but you also need to file it properly uh so if it's in the wrong spot we can never find it because there's billions of other pieces of paper in one vault no digital about labeling and categorizing is that what you mean yeah, so you know, part of digital preservation is the proper organization. Well, it's not the an archivist would call that a different process, but you know, it's all part of the same archival process. You need to make things so that they're in their right spots, so that people can find them, so that they're not, but so also that they're in their proper contextual spots. You're not going to put something, you know, somewhere just because it's easy to put it there. Although that happens quite a bit. Uh, although this happens a lot of, with. Um, like reel-to-reel -reel video files and the analog because you know you have to keep them cooler or they're the grade uh, so you have to separate them from the context but as much as possible you want to keep everything in its context together so you can't like put something here put something here put something here but if it's in one like if you're a video game company and you're just working out of a bunch of guys garages you're gonna have part of the game he's gonna have the other one he's gonna have the other one and then in five years when you actually do make it big and everyone wants to see that you know where did you come from how did you come up with these ideas and then Everyone's got to go from place to place to place to place, putting their old work together uh, because people actually want to see that now. And this is a very simplistic example, but this gets to the point that um, this happens also with government records. Uh, this also happens with corporate records where people are just assuming that um, these records are, oh, we'll, just, we'll just get them later, we'll just put them on the shelf. But a digital shelf um, suffers rot almost faster, well, definitely faster than a piece of paper. Uh, if I keep this in the, this piece of paper in the right conditions, I can save this for hundreds, uh, hundreds of years. Um, cool, dry, dark. Yeah, I can make sure that this thing stays this way for as long as possible. A CD on the shelf, 30 years max. Uh, a hard drive, maybe the same. Uh, 
especially if it's an SSD drive, <laughs> good luck. That's gonna... You're talking about the integrity of it, though, right? Not that it won't work at all, but just that it won't be perfect representation. Right. right. Well, that too. Um, the, well, the did I thing... miss you entirely? No, no, you're, you're getting right. You're actually hitting on two things there because the other thing, well, that's the integrity. Like you keep uh, your hard drive on your shelf and you plug it in 20 years later and it's like, well, it doesn't work. Well, why not? Well, because you sat it on a shelf forever and the bits just kind of went away. They switched and now it's just gobbledygook. Um, but the other thing is, well, I've got an A drive over there and I don't have a way to hook it up to my tower here. That's a problem. I could get an adapter uh, to hook the A drive up to a USB uh, thing and then plug it in, which I have seen those. Uh, I've used those at other uh, jobs I've done. But what happens if you get like a large floppy disk or say a reel-to-reel -reel, uh, uh, information disk that you don't have the machine for? You'd um, almost have to MacGyver your own adapter for it, right? <laughs> right. So you like have to bring in... That connects to one piece, that connects to one piece, and then hope they all work together. Right. But archive, archivists don't have a lot of that knowledge, which is why archivists do need to become more computer savvy, period. I don't, you know, yell at me at the comments. I said it. Um, <laughs> the, um, the other thing is that the experts and engineers that would know how to use this are also becoming more scarce. So you can't even outsource this very easily because who are you going to call? Now, this is kind of where my thesis comes in where I say, haha, you need to do digital preservation, obviously. And I almost like take that as read in my work because it's just like, yes, you do need to do more digital preservation. But not only that, we need to do more intense digital preservation. Which is why when I came across, uh, I was starting to think during my archival degree, what happens about, say, if you're playing a game and you have a save game and you want to go back uh, and see your save game, you know, you got all the things that was the best playthrough I did of that or whatever, or you had a really good time playing that one level and you want to experience that again. Or one of your friends says, oh, you know what? Windows ME was actually the greatest operating system on the planet. And you're like, what? We need to have this discussion. So you go on the internet, and the Internet Archive has emulated versions of all the old um, uh, Windows operating systems, or DOS. Windows and is. Windows is the Windai. Um, the Windai. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, I began to think, well, there's aspects of the records that we need to save. So let's take this piece of paper again. It's got words on it. Now, the thing we need to save about this, there's a couple aspects of it. There's the content, which is the words. And then there's the, uh, there's the medium. And I, yes, I will be referencing Marshall McLuhan a lot. Um, the medium is a piece of paper. It's a printed piece of paper with words on it. It's white. It's black uh, writing on a white field. Uh, it's a modern piece of... Uh, it's, so generally, in this case, the content and can be divested from the uh, medium. We don't really need the piece of paper unless it tells us something else about um, what we're doing. Now, Maybe you could go into that for just a sec, though, because mm -hmm. I think like chemical composition and you know like what do they call that forensic analysis of the medium might be a, might be part of the history, especially with like archaeology and stuff like that, right? 
Right. And maybe uh, it, it would help viewer or listeners or viewers or whatever to, um, to how do you distinguish the the significance of the medium? How is an archivist supposed to know to archive the medium itself as its own entity or as a partial entity of information contained on it? Or what are your so, thoughts? So, um, one of so yes, so uh, oh, we're almost jumping ahead here. Uh, so you're like hitting to the heart of this uh, because sorry, one, I'm a bit antsy. <laughs> no, that's okay. This is good. Uh, one of the things that we would want to do was the archivists would need to do appraisal. What is historically relevant and what is not. So I've got two copies of my printed thesis here when I was doing editing, uh, and they're both in here. They're both on the paper, and I have another couple on my thing. And uh, so I only really need to keep one of the copy, but one of the copies of the printed one because one of them already shows the medium and the other one is just the content is different. So we could take pictures of that one or uh, and leave it and so we could have a smaller all the necessary stuff. Now that's one thing you can do but when it comes to the digital it becomes a little more complex. So I say interactivity which is kind of this it's it's obvious what it means but it's kind of uh, it really isn't um, is uh, the this thing that we want to uh, maintain in itself. And I don't say that we should maintain the interactivity of everything because, and I argue that archivists shouldn't just try and save everything. They should measure and to see whether how much in, like how much the interactivity of that record pertains to the um, is necessary for the use of that record. So something like a Windows, uh, like a Microsoft Word document. You don't really need to have the interactive elements because you the content is probably more useful uh, than the medium. But for something like a spreadsheet, uh, however, and this is the probably the most important uh, one of the, the most important example I make is that a spreadsheet, you need to be able to move the things around to sort, to uh, scroll, to look around, to uh, to fiddle with all the values because that's the point of a spreadsheet. It isn't just a list. If you print out a sped spreadsheet, it just becomes a list. When you have an interactive spreadsheet, you can do what was meant to do with those values. And now, you're talking about like cells auto-populating and processing formula and stuff like that. Right. right. So you want to be able to so have a list of uh, values, and the, the whole point of the spreadsheet was to you know s sort the values to see uh, trends in the values. Um, this happens also with scientific data. You have a study which is done using a program that scientists wrote. Uh, this happens a lot of times because you know they need it to to work in a certain way and they need to be uh, very exacting because science. Now the other thing with science is that you need to run it again and again and again and again and again and again because you need to know whether or not the values that were put out by uh, the um, by that study were uh, they were good or they were just kind of you know is that indicative of what's actually supposed to happen so 
you need to run it again using the same parameters, which means you need the same program using the similar data or different data or the same data over and over, um, which is why I give the um, example of the Chase 3.1 software, which was measuring uh, lung ventilation and they needed to keep running it because if you run a study once, it's useless. Then you get one of those like, uh, I love science news stories where it's like, scientists discover this. And it's just, they ran like one study that yeah. showed one like tiny correlation and it's cool. And they put a bunch of graphics up and don't actually link to the, the study. But um, you need to be just able... report on the fringes of the bell curves. Like they yeah. find 4% on either end and draw some exorbitant some exaggerated conclusion from that so you need to have this data be interactive um the other way and i also use the uh example and this is going to be a little more uh, a little less esoteric is uh the example of a pop-up book now a regular book uh let's just pull out a random book here regular book you open it up and the interactivity of it is you're, you're holding it and you, you open it up and you read it. So that isn't really necessary for the reading, uh, but that's one way you could do it. Uh, you could also read it in an audiobook, which the medium is the message, means that you can do other things. I can read while I'm doing the dishes. I can read while I'm walking to uh, work. I can read while I'm jogging or something. Or, well, can, uh, I, can I ask you about the spreadsheet then? Because you're talking about the interactivity of the medium itself and the spreadsheet to somebody who's never used one or written a formula or it looks yeah. like a list to them, right? So they wouldn't necessarily know how to interact with it, even if they had the software and stuff. So is yeah. there an element to um, teaching people how to interact as part of the archiving process of interactive archives? Um. <clears throat> That would be a good thing uh, because, oh, look, here's here's MS-DOS. Go interact with it. And everyone's looking at it like, Yeah, what? good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like everyone born after 1986 is just like, no, I don't want to. And even yeah. those that did use it are like, I'm not going back. <laughs> or you've got like a 16-bit file system, the FAT16, and you're trying to read a disk on FAT32 or back and forth. Like, yeah. It's just not at all clear or obvious. <laughs> so um, that would be a good thing for archivists to do. So if you, but generally if you're setting up the, and we'll, I want to get to how. So a lot of my thesis looked on, the first chapter is the why, so the philosophical why. Why, what is interactivity and how did it manifest in the world in the way we know it? Uh, using the most basic examples of mouse, keyboard, uh, screen, and hypertext. This is how we interact. Um, and I wanted, th that was written for archivists, but it's also kind of a neat history of like the interactive elements of our technology. Because I wanted people to be able to understand that, and the archivists to be able to understand how these things are interactive. So you, you need to know, okay, how necessary is my mouse to the interactivity? How necessary is uh, the manipulation of cells to this thing. So when you get a, uh, one thing is that happens when you get in a, um, a file is that you have to figure out what the heck it is. So you get a, you'll get a notebook in and it'll just be a notebook to you at first, but then you gotta read it and you gotta be like, what is this? And then you read something, it's like, okay, now I have oh, to go in. Oh, last theorem, huh? Yeah, <laughs> what the heck is that? So then you have to go and do research and this 
this is why you need uh, kind of a history degree or you need uh, some sort of higher education because you will need to go do research um, and figure and out what you're dealing with. you need to do it properly for it to be effective, I'm, I'm guessing. Right, because uh, I remember I got the records of uh, the Agonetha uh, Dick uh, uh, records at the University of Manitoba. Go check them out. Um, and she was an artist, a very avant-garde artist in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and I didn't know anything about the avant-garde art scene in Winnipeg at all. And I had to go figure out what I was looking at because um, she was putting things into beehives and uh, pulling them out uh, and calling it art. And there was a lot of work involved. It wasn't just this is pulling it out and going, this is art. There was a lot of thought process involved in it. And she had thought it through and I had to understand her methodology in order to understand how I was going to organize her records that were based around her work. And it's the same thing with the program. You need to understand how the program works in order to understand how to uh, archive it, which means archivists need to become more technically savvy and not just literature savvy. They need to become tech savvy because you're going to start getting in mobile records. You're going to start to get in, uh, you know, digital only records that were created on the cloud and have only existed there. You're going to start getting in, um, like, how do you, how do you archive the Unreal 3 engine? How do you archive uh, a iteration of Linux? Uh, how do you archive a, um, you know, something that someone built and programmed on a Raspberry Pi? You need to know this. And period. I don't. I don't care what culture or. Like, You're saying it's agnostic to your faculty. Like every archivist needs to know technology these days. Like moving forward. Yeah, and they need to get in touch with the engineering faculty a lot. Um, <laughs> so engineers, if you have interest in history, we need you. Like, yeah, just make us a pitch. I'm sure we don't have the money to help you, but. <laughs> But, um, we'll talk to you, though. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, the reason I bring this up is because, and I want to get back to the idea of a pop-up book, because if you read a book, you can just read it. But a pop-up book, you have to, it pops up. Now, imagine if you took a picture of every page of a pop-up book. Uh, you can't do a little back and forth thing. You can't, like, open the doors, and you can't, like, you know, find all the little secrets, and you can't do all the things. You took a picture of every page, it doesn't become a pop-up book anymore. It's just a picture of a pop-up book. And so you can see the content, but part of the fun of a pop-up book is opening up and going, oh, and that's the same with a digital file. You get a video game that you want to play. Now, one of the things is that a lot of critiques come out that um, this doesn't put you in the head of the thing so you can't you're not going to feel the same thing so you you have like a youtube video or something and you're not going to be able to which is a one way of saving like a let's play you see those um i don't even know if they're still called those where you know you have someone playing the game and you're watching on youtube that's one way of saving the the kind of a bastardized version of saving the interactivity but if you actually save the program and make it as close to it as possible with as few bugs as possible, like in an emulation, which we will get into. Uh, it, so, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'll just start. So you can save it, 
by you know taking a video of the play and then you can look at it and be like oh, okay i can see how that might be fun but then it's different than actually playing it so you but play no less useful though right because somebody else could play a role that you've never seen before even though you've played the game because the right. game sort of propagate in different ways Right. So something like a adventure game, like say something like Skyrim is going to be played differently. It's going it's going to be you you have one thing, but you're going to have infinite variations of the way people play that. So it doesn't put you in the mind of the player or the mind of the creator, but it puts you in their seat. And that's probably as close as we can get. Um so the essay went from, not the essay, the, the thesis, the work, it went from the first chapter explaining why activity, what it is, why it's important, and it went into how, and the how is emulation. So emulation is totally just, you remember when you wanted to play that old game, you couldn't find it, so you loaded up DOSBox and pirated it. It's that. <laughs> um, which is a very simple way of explaining it, but uh, archivists have been using emulation and uh, and migration, which is just moving a, a simple way of putting it is moving a file onto a different type of file. So you change a uh, bitmap into a JPEG into a PNG, and you're migrating it a whole bunch, and it changes it uh, irrevocably. So the underlying data is changed, which is not good because you lose a lot of that underlying like what what are you losing in the migration but an emulation it keeps the underlying data and runs it that underlying data the same so the problem becomes you need to save that underlying data you need to re-emulate it on new and new systems so you need to know the and then the problem again becomes you need to know the old program uh, sorry the old hardware uh environment and you need to know the new hardware environment so you need to marry those together and then constantly um and have that run. And at first, I thought when I was starting my studies, I saw, thought this was um, a pipe dream. And I thought this was, uh, it would be pessimistic to say that we are, that we can be able to do this with the amount of funding memory institutions get, uh, like museums, libraries, and, um, and archives. Uh, Especially here, I'm in Alberta right now, and it's just everyone's getting cut. I, um, the other places are faring better, um, but the emphasis on, uh, you know, forget the past, burn it if you have to, uh, is becoming very prevalent. And what's the use of an archive or a library uh, when it doesn't help me, uh, you know, with this or that cultural thing? At a time when arguably it's more important than ever to be preserving our data. Because well, yeah. Especially when you've got the, the giant, they call them the fang stocks, but like Facebook, Google, Apple, they're collecting so much of our data. It seems to me insane if we didn't collect general data to at least balance that out. Otherwise, right. the only people holding history will be companies, and that just scares the piss out of me. <laughs> yeah, companies and uh, governments... Uh, so governments fund their archives because they rely on them to, uh, uh, especially in a democracy, you have um, a country with a government without an open archive isn't a good country because you need, and I don't want to hear, well, every country's like that are, uh, well, actually this, it's like, no. Um, 
you can go in and if something's not secret or top secret or protected, you know, personal data, then you can go in and see any of Canada's files. You can make a case to go see it. Um, you might have to argue your case, but that's how we work. In another country that doesn't keep it, say like China, but uh, you wouldn't have access to any of that. So we have this accountability structure in built into our system, and that's one of the things that we have in Canada and the United States. Now, the problem is, is that that accountability structure funds government records, but doesn't really fund anything else. Now, Library and Archives Canada does fund a lot of cultural stuff, and a lot of the provincial archives do a lot of cultural work, but we do, there's, that's, there's still more that we're losing because there's no independent, there's very few independent institutions and there's, and the corporate institutions are only, they aren't accountable at all because they're only accountable to shareholders or only accountable to the, um, uh, the owners who will look at it from a profit standpoint. Uh, and this goes for, um, for profit, uh, for profit organizations, uh, that even would, uh, like Tesla or something that you think uh, they may even be good, but no, they're, they're still going to keep it to themselves because they need that corporate secrecy. So there's no accountability. So the private keeping of records will also help accountability. I mean, I, sorry, I went on a rant there. No, no, it's fine. It's <laughs> I can't fine. remember where I was supposed to be going. <laughs> That's okay. Maybe I'll, I'll throw you back on, on, yeah, it's sort please. of on the same track anyway, but um, as far as LAC goes, like Library and Archives of Canada, you've obviously worked a lot with them. Maybe you could uh, describe how they are currently, well, obviously they're not interactive records, but like there is some interactivity. I mean, you can look them up, you can click on them, you can view them. So yeah. maybe you could start from where we're at now, and then we'll move into where your thesis takes you with how we, yeah. should, how we should proceed. So um, one of the things, uh, well, when I was at LAC, that was a couple of years ago, so this might be out of date and a lot of this might be conjecture. I'm not going to say anything bad about them because I actually enjoyed my work there. Um, and I found that a lot of my time was spent in discussion on how archives can better do its work, which was honestly very strange for a government job. We're all going to do an entire day to figure out how we can better serve the Canadian public. It was like, yeah, I've never heard of that before. <laughs> no, I was, I was like, put your name on a list and come back. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh wow. That's so we had an entire day of figuring out how like digital archiving can be done better. We had, uh, uh, I was able to attend, uh, AI description pitches from Microsoft and IBM, uh, which were cool. Um, and there were a lot of discussions regarding like uh, people would able be able to present their own work from LAC uh, to uh, you know here's what I worked on here's what I described look at the significance and so because there's so many records coming in you say hey look I found this record of uh, interned uh, uh, Canadian internment camps during World War II and look at all these uh, different records that we've gotten so we were trying to get them out because archive archivists want this stuff out because people. We, we believe in telling these stories because there's all these stories on there. Now, the digital is still very, uh, a lot of people are still afraid of it. Uh, and you get a lot of talk in not just at LAC, but like all over of people being like, oh, no, 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 the, the future isn't digital. Uh, actually, we're creating more and more uh, paper records than ever before. It's like, 
Yes, but there's also more people, and um, we're and creating it's because this paper. of digital. <laughs> we're it's printing like, records and <clears throat> copies of things. Usually, I, I, I have one, two, three, four computers in this room. Uh, my phone, my computer. I have a gaming system over there, and my wife's computer is in the other room, and she's got a phone, and there's you a computer. Don't want me to count mine. <laughs> no, and it's embarrassing. Like, <laughs> All these little devices that I have have little computers in them. Um, and to ignore that is folly. And to just because you don't understand it doesn't mean... And there's a lot of people that are literally afraid of it. They're afraid because they don't think that they can learn it in time to keep their job or something in case the, the market shifts, which is understandable. Um, they, they don't feel that they, they, they think they're an old dog that can't learn new tricks, uh, which... It, yes, tricks are hard to learn, um, but it's easier when you're a kid when you're forced to learn them. And there are, you know, I'm not going to get into developmental stuff, but my my, my grandmother you learned how to use a phone, like a digital phone, so I'm, whatever. The, um, but the, a lot of these things are still very complicated to figure out, so like AI description is still working its way in. A lot of times people are just taking digital photographs and they're doing basic digital uh, storage. Uh, the people funding them, I remember we got a completely underfunded. We were getting terabytes when of storage space when we needed petabytes at one place that I worked. Um, and so this what is... what do you do with that, actually? Like, if you have more data than you can store, is that just lost? Like, do you have to make a decision on, on the spot? No. Um, you lobby, uh, your, uh, the people that make the decisions, uh, for more funding for, to understand what you're actually doing, or you just go buy it yourself. If you're a small institution, you just be like, nuts this out of my own pocket. Uh, which is hard because the normal person can't afford a petabyte. I've got four terabytes here and another terabyte down there, but, um, and I can do basic digital preservation on this machine, but, Imagine if you get a someone like the prime minister files come in every time there's a new prime minister, and each time it's an order of magnitude larger, and so you get these like uh, like it's 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 like petabytes of data, and it's you and it's all almost, at once, right? Yeah, and so you have to sit on it. So it comes in in these disks and these hard drives and, you know, random stuff. Uh, there's access to it online. Like, there's born digital stuff. There's emails. And it's all you got to sit on it and be like, okay, we know what we want to do, but there's nowhere to put it. So we just sit on it and hope it doesn't expire by the time we get uh, the, the space for it. And so For the people, archive students, is that a common practice, like in, in the biz? Uh, the students? Well, just for their own knowledge, whoever's watching or whatever, is that common for an archivist to deal with that kind of like just lump sum, what do you call that, like batch data? Yeah. Is that sort of workflow of the industry? It, it can come in like that. It also can come in and there's a, what we call a, uh, like a record schedule. Okay, I know it was like, actually it's a records retention schedule and everyone calls it something different in every place. And it's like, yeah, but um, it's essentially you can schedule... Because like uh, places like uh, university will make digital records, uh, you know, over the course of time. And so every time a digital record's made, uh, you can set it up so that it comes in automatically, or it comes in in like a batch every month, so you get it. And then 
you set, you can even set it up so that you get these digital files and they automatically go where they need to go, or you can process them so you have like a it goes into a queue and you get a little bit at a time instead of a lump sum. But if you're setting up one initially, what's going to happen is you're going to get everything at once. All right, let's start a digital preservation program for our, our little uh, association here, and then let's see what we've got. Oh my, we have four like we have you know 25 terabytes of data that we have to organize and process and back up. How do we back up 25 terabytes? That means we need 50 terabytes. Actually, it means you need 75 terabytes at least. <laughs> and they need to be in different places. So you need more than one machine to be constantly on to, you know, checking to check the data. And then and you've got so, to worry about networking and cooling and power and all the costs. Right. Just displaying the data become astronomical once you have that volume, right? Right. right. So... Well, and accessing is actually almost small pennies because you know it comes up on you can have to you can set it up on the browser, which takes you know a, a technical investment. But then you set up a system and you have your servers, and you're like, all oh, right, we actually did it, we got it. Um, in ten years, those servers are going to be out of date, and they're not going to be big enough, and exactly. they're going to be using old software. So you need to plan ahead for that, and that's scary. So, and then here a guy like me comes along. It says, actually, what you need to do is be appraising for interaction. You need to have an interactive access system. And then they look at me like, go away, please. <laughs> yeah, we need to add a dimension to all the data you're already <laughs> collecting. We need to scale it out in a whole new direction. <laughs> yeah, so that's, 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 um, I did get interest, uh, but, um, there are actually people working on this. Um, they, they don't, they didn't have the same, uh, I kind of came at it uh, tangentially, so they were already working on it when I was coming up with my ideas of we need to save interactivity and here's and how would I do it? And I was thinking about like emulation and maybe my own emulation. Look over and these guys are already working on it. So there's a group of guys. There's a couple uh, things. There's the Olive Project and the uh, <clears throat> and the Easy Project, E A A S I, which is um, emulation as a service. Uh, <clears throat> which came out of the Bufla project, B-W-F-L-A. Uh, and um, they take a bunch of programs and, uh, and digital technologies and they put them together so that it automatically processes them, it reads the metadata of that file, and then it opens... So you, you I want to see this one. So you click on it in your browser so you can have your browser-based interactive system like at your your own personal you know Chris archives and you know you're displaying Chris Chris's program so you click on the program your browser program will send a, um, a signal to the easy server uh, and it'll send it'll read the files metadata see what kind of uh, environment it needs hardware um, software uh, environment and it'll render that so essentially you know this is a windows 3.1 on this kind of system use it with these programs so it'll open that up and it automatically create a shell that it'll run that in in your browser and you can play around with that so you have like a um uh a uh so uh, you can like open up the program and you can play around with it. So if you made a little game in Windows 3.1, it would open up Windows 3.1. You click on the game and open it up as if you're in Windows 3.1 running the game or running the thing. 
And it's ambitious because there's an infinite amount of software environments and there's an infinite amount of hardware environments. Luckily, most people bought the same hardware and software environments, so it silos it a bit. And its ambition is aided by the fact that it's open source. Uh, these guys are asking the community for help. They have an entire network of people because they see the uh, these the interactivity and this sort of um, the saving of it isn't enough. We also need to be able to use them. And to use a digital file, you need to be able to open it up. And a picture of the flash screen of a game isn't enough. Here's what Wolfenstein 3D was. It's like, no, I want to go crawl through it. And I want to hear the, the the MIDI music. And I want to, you know, uh, I want to see all the, you know, pixels explode. And that's one way of doing it. You can, uh, the Olive Project and the Easy Project are very similar, although the Easy Project is a lot more extensive. Um, there were other ones. There's ad hoc ones like the one I was thinking of, where as an archive you would build it on your own. Uh, Emory University did this with the. Oh man, I want to make sure that that's right. They did this with the um, uh, Selman Rushdie archives. Uh, his all his computers came in because he was writing on computers. So they got a bunch of computers in there. Like, what do we do with these? And so they made them available. Uh, they emulated the, his computers, uh, and they, uh, you know, scoured them, praised them for access. You can't access them all because they're, uh, some of them are very personal, but his, generally his work is accessible on one terminal that they emulated at Emory University. But that took a lot of effort for just one collection, and to scale that up to massive amounts of data, massive amounts of, uh, massive amounts of uh, various different types would be uh, impossible. You can't scale that type of project up. Um, there's other things like uh, Rhizome and uh, um, the web recorder, uh, where you can actually go through. Um, it's a program online where you can go through and you set the web recorder up and then you go to a website and it records all the source data and all the stuff and you click through the all the links and stuff and it records all that and then you have a saved state of that of that website that you can interact with and it has its problems but it's actually really interesting but that only works if you're trying to save one website the other example of this is the internet archive who i can't speak highly enough about um which actually does emulate various um states of like operating systems and uh but they do this using proprietary open source software like DOSBox and and whatnot. So What's they'll the address for, for that info? Is that archive.org or is that a different one? Uh, archive.org is the one with the um, it's where you can like, look up websites from like 1998 or whatever. Like it's yeah, old websites. Yeah, they do a bunch of things. I use it a lot for um, uh, I use it a lot to look up old books because they've got that interactive flipping software. They've got like, the book yeah. and you can look through it, which I think is great. Um, Page flips are awesome. I love them. Yeah. And they do a lot of good work because they save a lot of that stuff open. You can, there's like all the old DOS games. Um, I remember when I was writing, I spent a lot of time playing um, 
Commander Keen and stuff like that that I used to like when I was a kid. And I was just like, oh no, I spent too much time playing Tetris. Gotta get back to work. Well, everybody uh, knows the best Commander Keen was number four, though, so we'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. when you were talking about the Internet Archive, though, which, which organization were you talking about? Uh, I believe they just, the organization is the Internet Archive. So they, uh, they set up um, in the 90s and late 90s. Uh, as uh, they saw the necess necessity to save an instance really early of the internet, they they saw it because they they saw it as something that was very ephemeral. You know, you put up a website and then you're like, yeah, this is my website with all the lasers and you know uh, animated gifs and yeah. scrolling marquee text. Love it. Yeah, and um, the they said because it goes down and then your computer goes off and then all of a sudden the website's gone forever. So it's, it doesn't matter if a million people went through your website and went, ha, 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 I love that little animated fish thing and everyone saw it and everyone's talking about it and become part of cultural consensus for like 20 seconds. And then all of a sudden the website goes down and everyone forgets about it. And then that's part of the conversation that we were having as a society that's just kind of forgotten. Um, and I don't think I'm overstating this because just because it's like a animated fish that we're all talking about if we all forget that we all loved an animated fish i'm just making this up for like you know an, a week of our you know global consensus and everyone that was on the internet then um we're missing some things that were important because it's not always just a cute fish on the internet or a cat video it's a aspect of our lives that will be missed and it's because the important things aren't just politics it isn't just the economy it isn't just these it's 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 the stories we tell to each other and what we do on the internet are is to tell each other stories in this new medium according to the medium thank you McLuhan but it allows us to tell them in a different way and if we forget the stories we're telling using this medium then what's the point of the medium because well, other than to do it in the moment. But I think it's very useful for us to remember uh, the stories that we had uh, there. Um, be they, uh, here's my hiking video, or here's how to use this, or those infinite amount of coding help tutorials on YouTube, um, which, thank God they exist. <laughs> But um, oh, I just learned React through YouTube, so I fully agree. Yeah. I, I did S I did SQL, and I found it more useful than my uh, than my class on SQL, um, and even my textbook. And I was like, oh, so that's how normalization works. Why didn't they just say it like that? <clears throat> but the, 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 that's part of the interactive element. We like, oh, how did people learn? If we go back fifty years from now, how did people learn to code in the the twenty tens? Uh, well, a lot of what they did was they went to class, they, they, they read their, you know, little book, and they, they, they sat there with their code going, what the heck's wrong? And then they went on to Google and said, how do I blah, 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 and they found that one video uh, that that East Indian guy put up, you know, uh, bless his heart, and <laughs> they said, okay, I think I get it, and they tried it again, and it didn't work. <laughs> And so, like, this is part of our experience. And 
to just say, oh, and they built it and, and it got built and that's how society changed. It's like, no, we change our society with how we interact with uh, the world around us and how we interact with the people around us. So uh, no, that got really, um, I got really uh, philosophical there. No, that's good. Like part of part of what you're talking about, though, is indeed a philosophy of knowledge. Like it's like the ontology of ontology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're talking it, about pre preserving to teach, and it's like with with the emphasis on accuracy, whereas normally yeah. we teach for efficiency. So it's mm -hmm. like a completely different way of thinking, I think, about um, tackling that problem. Is yeah. anybody else like if for a personal or for a business? You just store everything. You throw it all in a drive and tuck it in some firebox and lock the safe and you'd walk away and you'd know it's there. Mm -hmm. But like when you're talking about your only business is storing all of data there is and mm -hmm. then trying to incorporate an experience into that, I think it is a philosophical thing because you got to like students of archives, I imagine, have to think a different way about storage, right? Yeah, so you have to, there is an element of efficiency in it because it's the element of what's possible. Um, because you have that idea that we have to make this proper. So it's almost, it's, it's, it's illegal, uh, but it's also a kind of a moral offense, in my opinion, to destroy something that is historically relevant. There's the, there's the story of that uh, guy who didn't like the Canadian Charter, um, and so he went over to look at it and he spilt a bottle of red ink on it. Uh, the Canadian Charter, I, I can't remember what it is, it's a charter, but um, one of our most. Charter of Human Rights? Uh, oh, no. I think it was the Rights and Freedoms. Uh, oh, geez, I'm, I'm supposed to uh, know this. Oh, that's all right. It's just a minor technicality. <laughs> so the um okay here it is uh it's our constitution so the 1982 proclamation uh they were showing it uh the red ink on this original document uh made it so that there's you know more information there's a, another story attached to it that's another uh that's another uh thing but if they wouldn't have been able to clean it off you would have lost the information under the red ink so this destruction of the past, this destruction of that knowledge, uh, is a danger. Um, and you need that accurate because you need to, you put it in a certain way, I think accuracy and efficiency are important, but that, and that save everything you can't do because honestly, some things are, well, stuff happens. Uh, at the same time, um, some things you get, a, a lot of times you get a big box of stuff and you look through the stuff and you'll get em em empty envelopes unmarked. You'll get um, <clears throat> receipts for uh, sandwiches. You'll get um, note to, uh, you know, note to fasten the screw on the fridge a bit tighter tomorrow. Uh, stuff like that. And you can put it in. And you also get copies upon copies upon copies upon copies upon copies. Um, so you have to be efficient in that manner. And not all of it tells part of the story. It does tell part of the story, but 
you have to decide between here's what I was thinking and I went to get gas at you know 6.03 p.m. on my way home. Uh, one of those is more important than the others. Um, so because even with paper you can't save everything and even with the digital you can't save everything. So you, you look and you see there's infinite like you, you go through an archive and of someone like a public official say and he's got a ton of data uh, a ton of data on his like emails this and that and this and that and you find a file and it's all cat pictures it's like a gigabyte of cat pictures because when he was in between things he would say go on youtube and like or go on google and type in cats because he's like oh this is nice and he'd save one every once in a while and over the course of like 10 years he'd have like a gigabyte of cat pictures okay, and you're talking about people's prawn stashes let's just be real <laughs> yes uh well i remember taking a um I, he might be watching this but uh i maybe take i took a uh history of digital uh, culture class, which was actually really quite interesting at the U of M uh, by Greg uh, Back, uh, who's my advisor. And a lot of people were, um, like I'm trying to be PG here, but uh, a lot of people that were in the class were, oh, the internet's this wonderful and beautiful thing. And I was like, yeah, but can we also talk about its dark, nefarious underbelly <laughs> that everyone knows about and that no one's willing to talk about because, you know, oh, they might think that I go on the internet for not, you know, you know, holy things. It's like, like I think people, we should talk about that, though. Uh, we should, um, but I don't know if, like, I'm another not more. Another time, another place? Another time, because it is worth talking about, but uh, it isn't worth, um, it isn't worth, uh, our, it, like, it isn't worth, we got to stay a bit on topic. Right, uh, yes. Yeah. 